Jesus did not just come as the forgiveness bringer. He came as the kingdom bringer. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. I'm uh, losing my voice today. Uh, I actually, I feel totally fine. I'm not sick at all. The truth is, last night I was playing with my kids and I was pretending to be a tiger for a long time. And I woke up this morning, I was like, what have I done? You know, so you'll have to bear with me today. Um, Open your Bibles with me this morning to Mark chapter one. Mark chapter one is where we're gonna be. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Luke and I get to serve here as one of the ministers at PCC. And there is a tall tale that is told back about the glory days of the Peyton Man years for the Indianapolis Colts. Y'all remember when they used to be a tolerable team to watch? Wasn't that fun? That was good, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and uh, so the story's told, like back then, you know, John Madden was announcing the games. And so there was one particular Sunday that John Madden was announcing the NFL game there in Pittsburgh for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And he looked down at the field from the booth and he saw that sitting next to their quarterback, Ben Roethlisberger, on the bench was this red phone, like old school phone, rotary dial, cord, the whole nine yards. And Madden was just curious. So he walked down to the field and he asked Big Ben, he said, hey, man, what's the, what's the phone for? And Ben Roethlisberger said, well, that's actually a hotline to God. And uh, Madden said, you know, hey, cool, could I make a call? And uh, Ben Roethlisberger said, sure, but that'll be 100 bucks. And so sure enough, you know, um, John Madden gives him $100, makes the phone call, and you know what? After he makes that phone call, he called a perfect game on the television broadcast, like just didn't, didn't miss a thing. He thought, well, this is pretty good. The next week, John Madden is broadcasting the game in New England. So he's there and he looks down from the booth and sure enough, sitting there on the Patriots bench right next to Tom Brady is a red phone. Madden goes down there. He asks Bill Belichick, the coach. He says, hey, what? you guys have a hotline to God? He said, yeah. And so uh, John Madden said, well, he remembered what happened last week, how good of a broadcast it was. He said, could I make a call real quick? Belichick said, sure, it'll be $500. And uh, John Madden says, yeah, okay, I guess it's worth it. And so he forks over 500 bucks, makes the call. Sure enough, calls another perfect game, just full of insightful and delightful commentary. Everything was going well. The next Sunday, John Madden was here in Indianapolis calling the Colts game. He looks down from the booth and sure enough, they're sitting next to Peyton Manning on the bench is a red phone. And so Madden goes down to the field. He talks to coach Tony Dungy. He says, hey, you guys got a hotline to God? Tony's like, yeah. And, and John Madden says, well, could I make a call real quick? Tony Dungy says, no problem. That'll be 50 cents. John Madden's thinking, what, what in the world? I, and so he asks the coach, he says, listen, I, I paid $100 in Pittsburgh, $500 in New England. How come the Colts are only charging me 50 cents to make the call? And Tony Dungy said, well, because in Indianapolis, it's a local call. Welcome to God's country. (laughs) It's a dumb joke. Thanks for laughing. (laughs) You know, one of the great messages from God to his people throughout history is this. Heaven is closer than you think. Heaven is closer than you think. Now, At a surface level, that might seem like a really fun message to get to announce, right? But think again, because the people that God often sent to announce that message were called prophets. If you remember back from the Old Testament in your Bible, a prophet was somebody, just a normal person that God would send to give his message to his people. And y'all remember that show, Dirty Jobs, that was on a few years ago? A prophet qualified as a dirty job. It was not necessarily a fun career, because if you were a 
prophet, God didn't necessarily just say to you, hey, go tell the people that heaven is closer than they think. He actually wanted his prophets to be like these living, breathing object lessons for the people to see. And, and it was a little bit of a dirty job. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see the prophet Hosea. And God asks Hosea to go marry a prostitute. And then to give their children all these weird names that would be sermon illustrations. And, and you think back, of course, to the prophet Jonah, who gets chucked overboard in the middle of the ocean. He has to walk the plank, and he ends up a midday snack for this giant fish. You think of the prophet Balaam. Balaam didn't even want to be a prophet, but God made him be a prophet. And then he, Balaam got rebuked by his talking donkey. You think of the prophet Jeremiah, and that got even worse. God told Jeremiah to go like, break some jars in front of people, even though they totally didn't understand what all they were doing. And then the job got to be really a dirty job. God actually told Jeremiah, this is no joke, it's in your Bible. God told Jeremiah to buy a pair of clean underwear. Okay, good. Then he told him not to wash his underwear, like a middle school boy thing, like not good. <laughs> then God told Jeremiah to take that dirty underwear and go bury it like in a hole in a rock. Go hide it and leave it for a while. Okay, you know, so he does. And then after a long time, God tells Jeremiah, he says, hey, remember your dirty underwear? Go, go dig it up and show it to everybody. Like, it's a dirty job. Not fun being a prophet. The prophet Ezekiel. God had the prophet Ezekiel do all kinds of crazy stuff. He said, Ezekiel, I want you to cut your hair off with a sword. And so Ezekiel cut his hair with a sword and God had him like throw some of it to the wind and burn some of it. God told Ezekiel, he also said, I want you to lay on your side. Don't get up. You have to lay on your side for 430 days. Whoa, talk about a cramp. And then God said, oh, hey, while you're laying on your side, I want you to bake some bread over a fire of human excrement. This is a dirty job, okay? And then there's the prophet Isaiah. And you know what God had the prophet Isaiah do? God said to the prophet Isaiah that he was supposed to walk around naked for three years. There will be no object lessons today. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> and yet even after all these prophets that God sent to remind his people that no matter how dark and desperate they were, no matter if they were in exile, God kept sending prophet after prophet to remind him, hey, I'm not abandoned you. I'm not gonna give up on you. God sent these prophets to say, if you repent, if you turn back to me, I will be your king again. I will rescue you. I will restore you. And heaven is actually closer than you think. After all those prophets and all those promises, all of a sudden there were no more prophets. There was just silence for 400 years. No more prophets. Until one day there was another prophet. And he came and he broke the silence. And can you imagine being one of the people? It's like, oh God, God is speaking again. And yes, this prophet carried the mantle of the prophets who had gone before him. He was bold and he was clear and he looked more than a little bit crazy. Let's meet this prophet together here in Mark chapter one, if you would, if you got your Bibles. The words will be on the screen. I'm gonna read out loud the words in white. I want you to read out loud with me the words in yellow. Let's kick it off together. Mark chapter one, verse one. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the son of God. As is written in Isaiah the prophet, that's the naked guy. He said, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one calling in the wilderness Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So we've met our prophet. Prophet, His name is John. They called him John the Baptist. Says the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey, yum. 
And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So our prophet here comes on the scenes and we see this long-haired, wild-eyed, grasshopper-eating, kind of camel-hair-wearing hippie guy and he shows up in the desert and he starts preaching and Mark tells us that his name is John. Now Mark doesn't tell us this, but some of the other gospel writers do, that John isn't just any old dude. John is actually Jesus's cousin. Now, I've heard it said before that uh, every family is like fudge mostly sweet with a few nuts, you know what I mean? And, and some of y'all just got done hanging out with your family. We've all got a crazy cousin, right? But, but your cousin over the holidays, I bet all he did was tell you how to vote. And Jesus' crazy cousin, like I bet none of your crazy cousins were giving you deep fried crickets for Christmas or like camel hair socks, right? Can you imagine Christmas with John the Baptist here? And yet, even though he looked crazy, Mark tells us that John wasn't actually crazy. He'd been sent by God to pick up where the prophets of old left off. You know, when you're driving down a highway, and you see a pickup truck, and the pickup truck's got flashers on it and a big sign that says wide load, got flags flying. You know that that pickup truck is there because there's something coming along behind that truck, right? That's like John the Baptist. John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for Jesus by preaching and by baptizing people in the Jordan River. Now, we love to baptize people here. Did you guys know that Christians didn't invent baptism, though? Baptism has actually been around for a long time. If you were in the ancient world reading this, that lots of different people groups, lots of different religions baptized people. But there's a fundamental difference in the baptizing that John was doing and the baptizing that we get to witness when somebody gives their life to Jesus. Um, John's baptism, if you were baptized by John, it didn't mean that you were becoming a follower of Jesus. It didn't mean that you had God's Holy Spirit coming and living inside of you. It was more of just a symbolic act of repentance and cleansing. Uh, let's, let's say it like this. Um, let's say I told you right now that in 45 minutes, the King of England was gonna show up at your house for lunch. If I told you that, what would you do? You'd probably run out of here right now. You'd go home, get yourself cleaned up and get your house ready for the King to show up, wouldn't you? And John shows up on the scene saying that. He shows up and he says, hey, heaven's closer than you think. The king is on his way. And, and so the people, when they hear this message, when they decide, okay, yeah, I wanna be a part of what God is doing, John would baptize them of their symbolic way of saying, I wanna be cleansed, I'm gonna turn away from my sin and toward God, I wanna be ready for when the king comes so that I can be a part of what God is doing in the world. John says, though, that when the king comes, he's actually gonna baptize people too. But it will be fundamentally different. John says he'll baptize with the Holy Spirit. So that means that when you decide to become a follower of Jesus and you are baptized, your baptism is different than the baptism of John. That, that when you are baptized, when we get to witness people give their lives to Jesus, it's not just a symbolic act. Scripture says that something deeply spiritual happens in that moment, that God comes and lives inside of you through his Holy Spirit, that in that moment, you receive the forgiveness of sins. When you go down in that water, all your sins are washed away. You're raised to new life, that you get the assurance of forever life with Jesus in his kingdom. That's an incredible promise. And just for the record, like I know it's the new year. Some of y'all might, you might, be thinking, I wanna get closer to God this year, and maybe you've never made that step as an adult saying, yeah, I'm gonna commit to following King Jesus by being baptized. And if that's you, you need to make that decision 
and we're ready for you anytime, 24-7. We got towels and extra clothes back there. No excuses, okay? We're ready for you anytime. You can talk to the prayer team after the service. You can always go on the website, click on the baptism tab. Some of you need to surrender in that way. But that's not the end of the story. Let's go back to the text here because now for the first time in the gospel according to Mark, we get to see Jesus. Take a look, verses nine through 11. Mark says, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You might remember from last week, we said that the question Mark wants you to ask as we read through this gospel account together, more than any other question, is who is this man? And every time we ask that question together, Mark is gonna give us the same answer. He's gonna say, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus is the one true king. And sure enough, he does it again here that we see Jesus comes down. He's baptized by his crazy cousin, John the Baptist. And as soon as Jesus is baptized, Mark says, heaven was torn open. Did you catch that phrase? Because any Jew reading this account would have recognized that phrase. That's actually a phrase from the prophet Isaiah, the naked guy from earlier. <laughs> that, that Isaiah looked around and he saw the darkness and the despair. He saw the people were so broken and so wicked and he begged God, he said, God, would you please come down and do something about this? He prayed in Isaiah chapter 64, the prophet Isaiah said, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would tear heaven open and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. And so when Mark says that Jesus is baptized and heaven was torn open, he's saying the prayers of the prophets have been answered. Heaven is closer than you think because the sky is torn open and it reveals that Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God has come. He is the one true king and God himself has stepped into the story. Who is this man? He's God. In fact, I don't know if you noticed it, but in this scene here at the baptism of Jesus, all three members of the Trinity are present at once. Now, you might not be familiar with that word Trinity. It's a big fancy church word. Basically, it means this. It means we worship one God. There's only one God, not three separate gods. One God, but within that one God, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see all three right here. We see the Spirit descending like a dove. We see the Father speaking down from heaven, affirming that Jesus is the other member of the Godhead, the one true Son of God. The God the Father says from heaven, this is my Son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. And I love that God says that. Before Jesus ever did anything spectacular, before he ever taught and attracted crowds and did miracles and died on the cross, before he ever did anything, he was tangibly, audibly, visibly affirmed and accepted by his Father in heaven. We all long for acceptance, don't we? But the great author C.S. Lewis writes about what he calls the inner ring he says that in every group of people, in every school, in every workplace, every, every family, every class, every team, every group of friends, there's always an inner ring. The people who are really, truly in, the core people, the people who are in the room where it happens. You know, there's always an inner ring. And all of us are driven by a desire to be on that inner ring. We wanna be accepted into that circle. And C.S. Lewis says the inner ring isn't like, an official thing. It's not like you get voted in or out of the inner ring. You don't get an official invitation to come join. It's more of an informal thing, but all of us are trained to recognize by social cues who's in and who's not. 
You can tell who's in the inner ring when you listen to their nicknames or you see who's got the inside jokes or who gets the invitation or whose opinions carry the most weight or who gets invited and who doesn't or who people go talk to the first thing when they walk in the room, who everybody else wants to sit by. We can tell who's in the inner ring, can't we? And we all wanna be accepted into that inner ring. We're driven by that desire. C.S. Lewis says, I believe that in all men's lives, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the ring and the terror of being left outside. We all wanna be accepted, don't we? And it breaks my heart. I mean, how many adults are there, even here, with full-grown bodies, and yet on the inside, they're just a little kid, desperate to hear their daddy say, you are my child whom I love, and no matter what, I am well-pleased with you. How many kids long to hear that affirmation from their parents, that life-altering message of unconditional acceptance. And yet, tragically, how many, how many moms, how many dads are too scared, too distracted, too busy, too annoyed, too embarrassed to speak that affirmation over their children? We all, we all wanna be accepted, don't we? And, and for you, I hope that you are accepted by the people that you love. I hope that you feel like you're in from the people around you. And yet the baptism of Jesus also reminds us that actually the acceptance that you are looking for can't ever be fully given to you by another person because another person who's broken like you are will always eventually let you down. And yet Jesus found his acceptance in who God the Father said he was at the very beginning of his journey. And it was that acceptance that propelled Jesus for the rest of his ministry. Understand, Jesus worked from that acceptance not for that acceptance. And so maybe if we could just push pause on the sermon here for a minute, maybe you need to hear that today. That if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, that means you are in Christ, which means that God's words to Jesus aren't just words to Jesus, they're also words to you. So we're gonna throw that verse up on the screen here again. I want you to read it again real slowly. Insert your name if you need to. But this is God's message to you if you're a follower of Jesus. You are God's son. You are God's daughter. You are his child whom he loves. I'm talking to you, not somebody else. I'm talking to you. You are his child whom he loves and with you he is well pleased. It's good news. But the story doesn't stop there. It keeps going. It doesn't end with this like feel good hallmark movement, right? Like Jesus receives the affirmation of God the Father. Yes, he receives the presence of the Holy Spirit when the Spirit comes down on him like a dove. But what is the first thing that the Holy Spirit does when he comes upon Jesus. It's a little sobering. Take a look, verses 12 and 13. It says, at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Now, when I got to go to Israel last year, I actually got to go to this wilderness, the wilderness where Jesus was when he got tempted. We have a picture up here. Nice place, isn't it? Want to go on vacation? Yeah. Like, thankfully, I got to drive by in a bus that was air conditioned. And even then, I was like, get me out of here. This is awful, right? And, and Jesus is in that desert being tempted by the devil. Now, Mark doesn't tell us exactly what the temptations are, but the other gospel writers do. They were all shortcuts to kingship. In other words, the devil came up to Jesus and he said, hey, man, been fasting for 40 days. You're hungry. Jesus, we know you're powerful. Turn those stones into bread. Satisfy your cravings a little bit. You're the king. You can do whatever you want. 
He said, Jesus, man, you don't, you don't have to go through the slow, painful work of establishing your messiahship. If you just jump off the temple, God will send the angels to catch you. Everybody's gonna see and affirm who you are. Just establish your power, king. The devil said, Jesus, I mean, you don't have to go to the cross in order to rule over everything. You don't, you don't have to die. Just come bow down to me real quick. I'll give you all the kingdoms. You can be the king. And yet, he'd been fasting for 40 days. So even though Jesus' stomach was empty, his heart was full of acceptance from God the Father, fresh off his baptism. And so he was able to resist the, father, the devil's temptation because his heart was full of the Father's words and acceptance. And here's the thing, as followers of Jesus, we're gonna be tempted too. Um, did you notice that phrase that Mark threw in there that Jesus was with the wild animals? When I read that, I was like, okay, what's going on there? <laughs> like, uh, is this like a Bambi kind of thing? Like, what's going on? Why is that in the text? And there's a whole lot of different theories about why Mark might've put that in the text. But one that intrigues me is that he put it in there as a reminder that as followers of Jesus, we will be tempted by the enemy too. Do you remember last week we said, where is Mark writing this gospel account from? He's writing from Rome. And so maybe Mark reminded these Christians that Jesus was with the wild animals because those early Christians in Rome are being thrown to the wild animals as followers of Jesus. And he's reminding them that even in their despair and their hardship and their attack from the enemy, Jesus is still king over the animals and that they can resist the enemy's attacks with their acceptance from God the Father just as Jesus did. And you're gonna be attacked too. It's uh, this week, um, it was really random. We had a conversation in our house with my um, oldest son. His name's Judas, five years old. And we were just riding around in the van one evening. And Judas said, out of nowhere, he said, will the devil ever attack me? Whoa, didn't see that one coming. <laughs> and uh, as much as I wanted to say to him, no, buddy, you're good. That would have been a lie. And so I said, yeah, man, he will. Judas said, how does he know who I am? <laughs> Why? I said, well, because he knows that your heart loves Jesus and he wants to do whatever it takes to make you not love Jesus. Judas said, what will he do to me? I said, well, he may try to discourage you. He may attack you or hurt you. He's gonna lie to you. But maybe, buddy, maybe right now the biggest thing he's gonna do to you is he's gonna try to get you to disobey He's gonna try to get you to take shortcuts. He's gonna try to get you to not wanna do the things you know you're supposed to do. And then if I could, can I brag? I had a proud dad moment for a second. Um, Judah then quoted back to me one of the little Bible verses that we had him memorize. And I didn't even ask for it, but he said, he said James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. <laughs> Pretty proud of him. And so we talked about, all right, man, so what, what does it look like to resist the devil? And of course, you guys know how your kids remember the most random stuff. It's like they never remember the things you want them to remember, you know? And of course, Judah remembers the one time I ever told him about the church reformer Martin Luther who lived 500 years ago. Like we have weird conversations in the preacher's house, right? But he remembered that this story of how Martin Luther, this old church guy would, would talk about how every night the devil would come to discourage him and attack him, but Martin Luther would resist the devil in two ways. And Judah has locked onto this. The first thing Martin Luther would do is when he felt discouraged by the enemy, he would just shout, baptism alone in his room to remind himself and to remind the enemy that like he's no longer under the jurisdiction of sin but that now he belongs to king jesus and so we talked about yeah buddy absolutely like you're going to be able to do that too someday when you give your heart to jesus and are baptized absolutely and then 
Because he's a five-year-old boy, he also remembers the second thing that Martin Luther would do to resist the enemy, which is, well, like, censor it for the pulpit, okay? He would um, aim some flatulence at the devil's countenance. <laughs> and like, Judah's a five-year-old boy. He's, like, locked onto that. He loves it. He's, like, talking about, so how's that work, you know? And uh, I said, well, well, maybe, buddy, maybe, maybe the thing you should do most of all is just to keep hiding God's word in your heart. Your heart needs to be so full of God's words that you're confident that you're his child and that he loves you no matter what. You gotta keep memorizing other verses like you memorized. First John 4, 4, greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. And I want you to know that too. The enemy is going to try to distract you, to deceive you, to discourage you, to drag you back into darkness and depression and doubt doubting that you really are God's child, that he really does love you, that he really is happy with you, and yet, and yet, and yet, greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. Now, text doesn't end there. Who is this man? Well, we've seen already so far just in this text that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of God. He is the one true king. He's accepted by his father. He's been filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's been victorious over the enemy, even though he was tempted in every way that you and I are. So who is this man? We know that. What about question number two that we asked last week? What is this gospel? What is then the good news that Jesus came to proclaim? Can you guess? Jesus came to say heaven is closer than you think. I love this. Verses 14 and 15, check it out. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The time has come. Heaven is closer than you think. Now that phrase there, kingdom of God, it has a sister phrase, kingdom of heaven. They're both synonymous. They mean the same thing. And those two phrases appear in the New Testament over 98 times. This is a big deal. The good news, the gospel according to Jesus is that the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's the gospel. Now, if I'm being honest, that's not always what I think of when I think about the gospel. A lot of the time when I think about the good news, I can think about more about us going away to heaven than heaven coming near to us. Uh, let, let me illustrate this by um, talking about the most quotable movie of all time, Monty Python in the Search for the Holy Grail. Can I get an amen? All right, very good. It's a weird movie, dumb movie, really funny movie. Watched it in high school. And... Uh, there's this one scene in that movie where King Arthur and his knights, they have to cross this bridge in order to complete their quest. Some of y'all know the scene I'm talking about, right? They have to cross this bridge. And the bridge is guarded by this gatekeeper who tells them that they have to answer three questions before they can cross. And if they get even one answer wrong, they're gonna be cast into the gorge of eternal peril, right? And so, uh, so they're like, oh, okay, I guess we gotta do this. And so the first knight steps up and the gatekeeper says, what is your name? Sir Lancelot. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is your favorite color? Red. And he gets to walk across the bridge. Ta-da, that's it. And he's like, oh, okay, that was, that was easier than I thought. And so the, the, the second knight walks up, kind of swaggers, like this ain't gonna be too bad. You know, he steps up, the gatekeeper says, what is your name? Sir Robin. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is the capital of Assyria? <laughs> Sir Robin says, I, I don't know that. Ah, you know, he's like cast into the abyss and... So the third knight walks up and he's like all, all nervous now. What is your name? Sir Galahad. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is your favorite color? And he's so nervous, he says, I've red, uh, no, blue. Ah, 
you know, he's like, yes, another thing. And, and then King Arthur walks up and the gatekeeper says, uh, what is your name? King Arthur. What is your quest? To seek the grail. What is the airspeed velocity of a swallow? King Arthur says, well, that depends. Is it an African swallow or a European swallow? And the gatekeeper says, I don't know that. Ah, like he's cast into the thing, right? <laughs> it's a dumb scene, but I say all that to say this, okay? A lot of people have reduced the gospel to that. They're like, when you die, there's this bridge to the other side that gets you into heaven so you don't have to fall into the gorge of eternal peril. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus is the right answers to the questions when you get to the bridge so the gatekeeper doesn't chuck you in the abyss. That the, the gospel has been reduced to the secret password at the end of your life that's gonna get you into heaven. Now listen, listen, listen. There's more than that. Jesus did come as the bringer of forgiveness. Yes, Jesus did die on your cross, on the cross, so that your sins could be forgiven and so that you could get into heaven someday. Yes, absolutely, that is true. We're gonna talk about that every single week. That is huge, that is important, that is vital, and that is a big, 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 big part of the gospel, but that is not all the gospel. Jesus did not just come as the forgiveness bringer. He came as the kingdom bringer. He didn't just come to get this world into heaven. He came to get heaven into this world. Now, if you look around us, we are living in the kingdom of earth. Scripture says that this world right now in its present state is, it calls it the kingdom of this world. And the kingdom of this world is being ruled by the prince of this world. That's what Jesus calls the enemy, the devil. In John chapter 12, verse 31, the prince of this world. Look around. How are things going under the reign of the prince of this world? Violence? Betrayal? Pandemics? Sexual assault? Racism? Jihad, division across ethnic and socioeconomic and national and political lines, cynicism, anxiety, depression, loneliness, fear, isolation, babies dying from malnutrition, things ain't looking so hot under the prince of this world. But the good news about a prince is that he's only in charge until the king shows up. And when King Jesus came, he said, yeah, this ain't working. Try my kingdom on for size. Heaven is closer than you think. The kingdom of God has come near. And this may sound like it's just abstract theology that we're just pontificating about stuff that has no relevance to your real life when you walk out of this room. But listen to me, this is imminently practical. This has profound implications on how you live because the message you believe determines the person you become. Let me say that again. The message you believe determines the person you become. If the good news is that the shopping mall is at hand, then we will become shoppers. If the good news is that the television is at hand, we will become couch potatoes. If the good news is that the revolt is at hand, we will become warriors. If the good news is the once a week Sunday morning light show and pep talk is at hand, then we will become consumers of religious goods and services. 
But if the good news is that the kingdom of God is at hand, then we must become citizens who bow before the king, do whatever he tells us to do, go wherever he tells us to go in allegiance to him. The kingdom of heaven has come near. And, and the beautiful thing is, that's Jesus' plan for the world. And that we, as his followers, now he says part of our duty is just to pray for that reality to actually come true in our everyday lives. That's why when Jesus taught his followers to pray in the Lord's Prayer, you know this, Matthew chapter six. What did he teach them to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's the first thing he told them to ask for? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not like a get me out of here to heaven Monty Python kind of prayer. We could call that a Star Trek prayer, right? I've, I've never seen Star Trek before. I still have my dignity. Um, if, if you have, I'm not judging you, maybe. Uh, <laughs> but, but we all kind of understand the Star Trek references, right? That the, the crew of the Starship Enterprise, they would go down to some alien planet in every episode and they'd get in trouble down there on that alien planet. And when they're in trouble, what do they do? They grab their little communicators and they say, beam me up, Scotty. And they get taken back up to their spaceship, right? Jesus did not call us to pray Star Trek, beam me up, Scotty kind of prayers. Jesus, beam me up and get me out of here. Jesus called us to pray just the opposite. He didn't call us to pray, get us out of here so we can go up there. One preacher says that Jesus told us to pray, Lord, make up there, come down here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The great spiritual author, Dallas Willard, he said it like this. I love this quote. He said, discipleship, the act of following King Jesus, discipleship is learning how to live in heaven before you die. God is not just keeping us alive until he decides to take us to heaven. He's equipping us to be ready for it. Heaven is not meant to be a terrible shock for us, like some celestial holiday resort which looks nothing like the photos, a place where we wake up and we find ourselves saying, ooh, I never thought it would be like this. It will, of course, be utterly wonderful, better than we can possibly imagine, but the point is, its values are ones we should be trying to live now. So here's the question for you. That's great. But in the difficulty and the distraction and the pain of your real life, in the face of your family drama, in the face of your secret sin, in the face of your depression, in the face of cities being torn apart by gang violence and funeral homes being filled with drug deaths and husbands and wives who can't stand each other and successful people in beautiful homes who are addicted to stuff and deep in debt and racked by worry and some of them don't even wanna live anymore. In the face of all that, do you think Jesus was actually serious? That heaven's closer than you think? Do you think he actually meant that the kingdom of God had come near? That up there somehow really could come down here? Do you think he was serious? Because I do. And that's why we're here. And so as his followers now, even though sometimes it's hard to see, our call is to pray toward that end. We're actually gonna be preaching this exact same text next week. Uh, we're gonna be getting more into the nuts and bolts of what it actually looks like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven while we live in the kingdoms of this world. But, but for today, what if we just walked away saying, you know what? Heaven's closer than we think. And I wanna be a part of it. 
And what if we started just by praying that prayer and you don't even need like a red phone hotline to God to do it. What if we just started to say, Lord, would you make up there, come down here? What if we started walking around and living our lives as living, breathing object lessons, like the prophets, these living, breathing, fully clothed (laughs) object lessons to say, Lord, would you make up there, come down here in my marriage and with my kids and my grandkids and at school and in the workplace, would you somehow make up there, come down here through me? And maybe, just maybe if we do, we discover that heaven is closer than we think. We're gonna get to taste a little bit here now, like we always do. Um... Jesus says this good news, you can't leave here and do nothing about it. It actually demands a response. He says the proper response to the good news is to repent and to believe it. And so we're gonna have a prayer team that gathers around the edges of the room here. They'll be outside the balcony as well, like they always are with their green lanyards on. And we're there to pray for you for the little things. Like, man, if you're just discouraged and you need some help or you got a tough situation and you need somebody to speak over you the truth that you are God's child whom he loves, that you are well-pleased, if you just want somebody to pray for you about a little thing going on in your life, we are there for you. That's what it's for. But we're also there for the big things. And the difficult reality is that if the king arrived right now, that some of you aren't ready. And you need to repent and to believe the good news. You need to receive the baptism that Jesus offers and the assurance of life forever in his kingdom. And if that's you, we're ready for you too. And you can go talk to the prayer team. And if you are a follower of King Jesus today, then this moment is for you. Jesus said when he took the last supper that, hey, I'm not gonna drink the fruit of the vine with you again until we drink it together anew in my father's kingdom. That this is a moment we look forward to being together with him and with all God's people in his kingdom forever. So. I'm gonna give you a moment to receive this little piece of bread on your own. As you do, would you thank Jesus for his body? But would you also remember that because of the body and blood of Jesus and his death and resurrection, you get to be accepted into his kingdom as a child of your father in heaven and that he looks at you in this moment and he says, you are my child whom I loved. And no matter what, no matter what you've done, no matter where you are today with you, I'm well pleased. Take a moment and then we'll pray and we'll receive the juice together. Jesus, this is good news. It's good news. You're the king and that you've invited us into your kingdom. And sometimes it's hard to see, it's hard to understand. We wrestle not only with the darkness outside of us, but with the darkness inside of us. And we feel the constant pull. The greater are you who are in us. And so Lord, our prayer is that somehow in our real lives, that you would allow us to serve you in such a way that you would bring your kingdom here, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we are thankful that we get to drink this cup today that represents your blood, knowing that if we are in you, we have not been condemned, but we have been accepted as your children whom you love. And with us, amazingly, you are well pleased. It's only because of your grace, Jesus. And in your name, all God's people said, Amen. This is the blood of Christ. Would you stand with us together as we worship our King? He's our only hope in life and death. 